Good morning and welcome. I'm so thankful to be with you this morning in worship. I'm Shay Ryanga. I'm blessed to be one of the pastors here. If you don't know me and I don't know you, um, come say hey after the service. So glad that you're here. As you can see, we're still in It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, our sermon series. It's the last week, the fourth and last week of the series, where we've been lifting up uh, the life and testimony and, and kind of show of Fred Rogers. And he was a Presbyterian minister who, who did this show in response to sort of the landscape of TV that he saw. He had this gift, he had this vision of provi- of creating this TV show and he looked at the landscape and he saw anvils falling on cartoon characters' heads and, and people falling off and characters falling off cliffs and thought that, you know, kids deserve better than just that. And so he created this show with the conviction that the Holy Spirit would be able to filter what he offered young boys and young girls and be, and, and that the Holy Spirit could translate through television and be a word that these young boys and young girls actually needed. So most of what we've talked about so far is very personal and how individuals deal with feelings and so much about Fred Rogers was that, but Neighborhood is in the title of the show and he was every bit as much of how those young people would treat others and be part of their communities. And so I wanna lift up for us this morning community and talk about how the community we call the church is formed and then what what kind of community is the church supposed to be? Like, what does the church look like? How does the church live in the world and expre- express itself in the world? And so uh, we're gonna look at Acts chapter two if you wanna get ahead and just make a note of that. We're gonna be in Acts chapter two this morning to look again at how the community called the church is formed and then towards the end of the chapter, what does it look like? How does it live out its call and its mission in the world. And before we do that, I want you to think about uh, some of the junk, some of the trinkets, some of the artifacts that you hold on to that you just can't seem to get rid of. That maybe your significant other has, has nagged you to get rid of because what you have, are holding on to serves no practical purpose. It doesn't, doesn't help you live your life. It's, it just is what it is, and for nostalgic purposes, for whatever reason you've held on to the thing, you hold on to certain things. And I know for me, I didn't bring it because it's kind of crummy looking and it's really small. You wouldn't be able to see it if I brought it to show you. But I have this piece of a gym floor that I, that I hold on to that usually gets stowed away in a box or a bag somewhere, but I can't get rid of it because many of you know I'm from the great state of Indiana. And I did get to Texas as fast as I could, but I'm from the Hoosier state. And if you want to know what Hoosier means, it just means someone from the state of Indiana. That's all it means. And of course, you, many of you may have seen the movie in the late 80s starring Gene Hackman and Dennis Hopper called Hoosiers. Well, I've got a piece of the gym floor that was the home gym floor that Hickory played on in the movie. So... I'm not giving that thing up. I'm not throwing that away. It doesn't look very good, but I'm holding on to it. It was a gift from one of my friends in high school. I love, love it. It doesn't, it, it's meaningless. Like it, it, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't serve any practical purpose, but I hold on to those things. So think of some of those things that you hold on to. Here's an image of an ancient coin. So I love stuff like this. Artifacts. Before God called me to ministry, I wanted to be Indiana Jones. And so I wanted to go find the Holy Grail and find ancient manuscripts and churches and whatnot. Here is an ancient copper coin dated to the first or second century. And you might remember when Jesus has his disciples notice that the widow's offering 
she offers two copper coins, and the monetary value is really insignificant and small compared to the monetary value of like all these other sums that, that are being given. But he's like, I want you to pay attention because the sacrifice for her to give what she's giving out of her poverty, I want you to pay attention to that. And so maybe it was a coin like this, I don't know. But that coin doesn't really say much about and doesn't have, have much to say about how our monetary system functions today and our cryptocurrencies and the digital way in which money and transactions are passed. Like it's, I love archaeology and I love ancient artifacts, but for all intents and purposes, they're, they're dead artifacts. And so as we approach scripture today, as we open up to Acts chapter two, when we approach the book of Acts, I'm convinced so much of the division and the confusion in our world and, and, and it's creeped into our churches, big churches, across denominations. There's so much confusion. I'm convinced that a lot of it, a lot of it has to do with how we measure and control the amount we want God to speak to us. And that there's certain filters we put in place and our pride and our selfishness that we want to control and measure how much God speaks to us. We don't want to hear everything he has to say to us. And that sometimes when we open scripture and we open God's word, we open it as if it's an ancient artifact, as if it's strictly descriptive. It's describing this time and this place that, that we don't really understand. It, it kind of affects our sensibilities and we don't understand sometimes the context, the historical context. And be, because of that, we can easily cherry pick what we engage in when it comes to scripture. And so I want us to open God's word, expectant that the Holy Spirit has given us everything we need in scripture and that the Holy Spirit is present to help us understand like seminary degrees and historical research and all that stuff is, is important. It's helpful, but it's not necessary for us to dive deep into scripture and to hear the word that God has for you and for me. And so with that attitude and that spirit, I want us to, to open scripture and read Acts chapter two with the Holy Spirit, acknowledging that the Holy Spirit is with us. I love what biblical scholar John Stott says about the Holy Spirit. He says, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. And Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, helps us again understand the way in which the attitude by which we should approach scripture as Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 reminds us for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So with that preparation, let's look at Acts chapter two, verses one to four, as we see the formation of the church. And then we're gonna look at the end of the chapter to see what's, how, how is this community called to live out its mission into the world? 
When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Luke, Luke is trying to use language to describe the indescribable, like so often we see with the, prof- with the prophets and the visions that they get. They're trying to describe in human language what is indescribable as they experience this manifestation and the coming of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Luke's right, Luke writes Acts as a continuation of his gospel. And so we can see this time that we're in in scripture. We could call it the time of the Holy Spirit or the time of the church, this time in between the ascension of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Acts chapter one, we read that that Jesus is going to come again as he, in the same way, as he was seen departing. And so now this time has come. And there's three gifts that we see in in these images that that are poured out upon this gathering of people here that is part of the DNA of the church. Something like a violent wind is heard and experienced and comes. And we can think of the wind being representative of God's power given the church. Many of you, if you've lived any time in West Texas or the Panhandle, have seen those wind turbines and have seen wind converted into power, this power that comes. It's why the church is called the church triumphant. It's why the gates of hell will not prevail against the church because the church isn't man-made. The church is endowed and given power from God. Power comes and is experienced in this kind of violent wind. I remember this time that I went with my brother to South Africa in 2010 in conjunction with the World Cup. We went on a mission trip with this ministry called Lions Raw to build orphanages for orphans in the area and to to build community and establish some soccer camps for kids in the midst of that time as we were building these orphanages. We would pray together and worship together before and after the soccer camps. And I remember going and we, we, we stayed in this place called Durban, South Africa on the Southeast coast of South Africa. And if you don't, if you can't quite place this World Cup, it's the one that sounded like this. If you remember the Vuvuzelas, those crazy plastic instruments that were obnoxious and annoying and uh, just, it was, it made the games actually hard to watch because of the pitch of these things. So it was the really loud, annoying World Cup in 2010 that Spain won. But we were based in Durban and we bust in two hours to this place called a Valley of a Thousand Hills. And it was as beautiful as it sounds, but, but as rugged and as impoverished. And as we spent time there, it was quickly comprehensible that, that you're born there. It's hard to get out of there. 
And that some of the kids, the kids aged ranged from four years old to 17, 18 years old that participated in these soccer camps. And, and most of them, we never saw them leave to get food during the day. And, and we were told that some of them were able to get some rice, but, but that's the kind of, of poverty we were, we were serving and, and dealing with as we were getting to know these kids and their dances for South Africa. Because one of the things about hosting a World Cup, your, your native nation gets to participate, whether they're good or not, they get in by virtue of hosting the World Cup. So we were learning all the South African uh, chants and some of the, the language and whatnot and some of the dances and the celebrations. And so we were having fun with that. But, but that fun and this celebration and this joy that we were having amongst these kids, the, the just joy of the Lord was upon their face, even though they had very little, uh, that was quenched for us a little bit as we learned a little bit about scarcity and one of our leaders had really good intentions, but as we were ending one day, one session, there was this pile of gear we had to give the kids. And there was gonna be instructions about waves that they would come up and then take some of the socks and the cleats and the shin guards and whatnot that we had for them there. And we were in this big circle. There was about 40-ish at this camp every day. And that wasn't a very good plan come to find out because as we gave different groups and age groups permission to go, um, instructions weren't followed and it was, it was a swarm to the pile and the big kids didn't hurt the little ones too severely, praise God, but, but it, was, it was not pleasant. Nobody felt good about the experience. And in fact, for us, we, we, had, we had a little fear creep into us about how to get back to the bus because there was a lot of distance between us and the bus and we're two, two hours of, 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 of a tough little up and down journey to get where we're staying. And so we had to reevaluate some things after that day. And that experience didn't sit well with us, but we still had a plan one of the last days of our camp to feed the soccer camp. And so we tried to establish a better system. We spread out our leaders. We had an assembly line system. We, we felt confident that we, we could do this, right? And there was this grandma matriarch figure that had the shack of a deli that um, she couldn't make much and there wasn't a lot of people that could buy from her, but the little that she could make, there was enough people in the villages that could buy it. And so typically she could make, make okay and sell out and making her little sandwiches with just a little bit of meat, a little bit of cheese. And so we sold, we, we bought all that she could make one morning and we, we weren't positive if it was enough. I mean, it was going to be close it was gonna be close. And so we proceeded to get on the bus and start making the little sandwiches and we had the kids line up. But as about, we, we got about halfway through the line and quickly um, worry and some anxiety crept in because not only am I not sure that we're gonna have enough for our kids, word has gotten out. And now there's, there's two to three times as many kids in line waiting for a sandwich than showed up camp and we can't really control that. And so there's this worry, like we've had this previous experience and how, how's this going to go when we don't have enough for two thirds, half, two thirds of the people that are, that are lined up. And, and I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we did not have enough. And yet everybody got something to eat. We didn't have enough. <laughs> we didn't have enough. Look, we didn't. And some 
how everyone in that line walked away with a little sandwich and those who stayed for the camp, some of them got two. And in, in that moment, for the first time, like God's word when he's preparing his disciples in the middle of the gospel of John about trying to prepare them and love on them and help them understand that I'm gonna go. It's, it's gonna be time for me to leave soon, but I will not leave you orphaned. There is power given the church. There is power that is part of the DNA of the church, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And this fire that comes, this fire that comes that's seen as a big flame and a big fire that then separates and, and goes over everyone's heads that are gathered there. This fire is represented in, in the purity the gift of purity that is given the church as, as there's some people that don't quite understand what's going on. Peter stands up after this happens and, and preaches and proclaims what is going on and says what is happening, that this is to fulfill what Jesus said would come to pass. And as he shares that, as he, as he shares that, he reads, he reads from the prophet Joel and says, this is the time that we're in, brothers and sisters. In the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter keeps preaching because he knows and he's got boldness and confidence. And they're like, what do we do? Now what do we do? They're, they're cut to the heart in light of the presence of God and the Holy Spirit and the majesty and the holiness. They're like, what do we do? They, they realize that they are unworthy of this gift. They are unworthy to receive it. And Peter tells them to repent and be baptized. That this gift that comes that is also part of the DNA of the church is this purity. And it's not because we come perfect and pure. We come broken and fragile and hurt stained by our selfishness and sin and, and trying to control our lives. And we come so desperately in need of God's grace and he purifies, he forgives. So we understand that we can't proclaim the name of Jesus and receive God's love in isolation from repentance, from forgiveness, that we can't reduce the gospel in that way. It is a refiner's fire, the presence of God. It's a refiner's fire, those impurities that are in precious metals that have to be worked out. So too is this fire that comes and is given and is part of the DNA of the church. And then there are the tongues that come that represent this new unity that, that doesn't exist on the streets in Rome with their socioeconomic status and, and people that have and those that have not. And there's different languages and 
different nationalities and there's all this confusion because no one can really understand each other because so many people speak different languages. But what's amazing about what happens is more and more people come to this gathering at Pentecost because there's recognition. They hear their own language and these ordinary people who are not educated or given the supernatural ability to speak in a tongue that isn't their own, that all the nations, representatives of the nations hear and they come. It's a reverse of Babel if you remember Genesis 11 where instead of subduing and scattering and living in the good creation God gives us and tells us to, we get comfortable and we settle and we, in our idolatry, in, in our vanity, we build a tower for our own name, for our own glory, for our own sake. And, and scripture says it's a tower that reaches up to heaven. And it's one language that we have and we build a tower up to heaven. And here notice it's a reverse of Babel than in the fulfillment of what is to come in this baptism of the Holy Spirit, this endowment of power upon the church, Babel is reversed. Heaven comes down. Heaven comes down. And in the midst of all of these different diverse peoples and languages, there is unity, there is understanding. The body is brought together in a way that is foreign to the outside world, that is foreign to culture. These walls are brought low. This is how God forms the church and creates the church. So then, if this is the DNA of the church, how is, how is the church supposed to live into the world? What kind of community are we supposed to be? And we see this if we flip to the end of the chapter as the middle of the chapter is Peter clarifying for those gathered what is, what is taking place. And he's preaching and proclaiming God's word in the midst of the assembly at the end, verses 42 to 47. We see after the church is formed, after Peter preaches, we see a picture of the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So we see the church is a learning community. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Like there's no doubt this this manifestation of power when the Holy Spirit comes upon the community. But, but these people don't stay there in this mystical kind of experience 24-7. They, they sit at the feet of the apostles for the transformation, the renewing of their minds. What legitimizes the apostles' teaching are these signs and wonders. There, there is a truth being proclaimed that is, that is above anything that the world has to offer. So they gather at the disciples' feet to learn, 
to study. And praise God, we have it in the written form we call the New Testament. And so we come as a church, as a community to learn God's word, not to accumulate a bunch of knowledge, but so we, we can grow deeper, deeper in understanding the ways in which we're called to chase after God's own heart. So we can grow deeper and deeper and learn how to be a transforming presence in our neighborhoods. So we can grow and learn how to conform to the word of God, to the truth of God's grace. The church is a learning community. The church is also a loving community. They were devoted themselves, they devoted themselves to fellowship, to fellowship. This word fellowship is koinonia. And the word koinonia we understand is a sharing and a holding of things in common. And so the church, as the church comes together and shares and holds things in common, there's some things that the church shares in and there's some things the church shares outward. And what the church shares in, this, this love that is the foundation of the community is what the church shares in, the very love of God that unites God in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is expressed in the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself who loves us so much that he dies for us. That love that unites God, unites you and I and us together as a community, as a family, in the fellowship of God. We share in that. We share in that. And we share out the love of God in our neighborhoods. We share out the resources in our public lives. We share out, we see pictures of selling possessions and property to help those in the community who have need. And no doubt in Roman society, there was no community more generous than the church. And to be loving is to be generous. James will remind us in another place, like if you want to know what pure religion is, it's to love and care for orphans and widows, those on the margins of society. So we see there's this sharing in, there's this sharing out as the church is a loving community. The church is a worshiping community. We see the way in which they worship. And there's an order, there's a timeliness to it, but there's also spontaneity to it. It's not rigid. They, they worship in terms of communal prayer and the breaking of bread and communion outside the temple courts. And it seems like there's an orderly way that they do this, but they also break bread and worship in each other's houses. There's this flexibility in the church. There isn't this standardized way of how we always have to do it and how often we have to meet and gather. There's an openness to the Holy Spirit as the church worships together and they worship together. And there's never been a time in history where we're more susceptible to isolate ourselves from the community, where we can substitute our own ways, what speaks to us, how we wanna hear how we want to experience God and we want to kind of control all that. Easier than ever, our live stream is awesome. Like the camera angles, I was praising Noah earlier today because we've got these dynamic camera angles now. It's so easy to sit at home and just, and just take it in that way. And praise God you can when, when life happens, but, but we can't ever isolate ourselves and use our own personal devotional life as important, as important as our personal devotional life is. And that can't be overstated how important our personal devotional life is. It is still not a substitute for life in the community and for worship 
relationship in the community. It's never just me and Jesus. It's also we and Jesus. And there's a danger when we isolate ourselves and we separate ourselves from the body and we separate ourselves from those who wanna speak life into us and encourage us and build us up and offer grace. We're in danger. And the church is also an evangelistic community and God adds to their numbers all those who were being saved. And God adds to their numbers all who are being saved. No doubt you and I have work to do and God uses us preachers and teachers and disciples to preach the gospel, to express and emanate his love and his grace and his goodness in the world. And we have that responsibility, but praise God for the church triumph and it doesn't depend all on us, that it is God who does the admissions. It is God who welcomes it is God who adds to the number, scripture says. We don't see Peter and Paul sort of in fights of, about who's saved more in their ministries. They understand their obedience, their surrender is what God requires of them. And the rest is up to God to move, to prepare environments and appointments and workplaces. Before you even enter the room, God is at work in preparing people for a word that, that the spirit would lead you to give them or expressing God's love in a way that's transformative in someone's life, that, that surprises you because you weren't aware that, that God went in before you went in the room <laughs> and, and all throughout Acts, it's amazing. Like there's places, there's places Paul and Barnabas and they all go and they minister and they're preaching and teaching and doing all this stuff and God's adding to their number and it's amazing, but there's places they're not allowed to go into yet. God, God's been doing some work and it's not time to go there yet. Like they go into certain places and there's already believers. Like there's, there's already work that God is doing that praise God, he doesn't just have us as his hands and feet. He's got his own, he's got his own agency, his own power, his own ability and sovereignty to work in the world. And he often does so and surprises us and we should expect that he's already been working in the places that we go to. This is a, a evangelistic community. And notice too, that God doesn't add anyone to the church without saving them. He doesn't add anyone to the church without saving them. And he doesn't bring anyone, he doesn't save anyone without bringing them into the church. He doesn't add anyone to the church, to the community without saving them. And he doesn't save anybody that doesn't become grafted in and part of the family of faith. So this isn't nominal or casual Christianity. And this, this isn't, something we get to do on our own. This is us. This is us. This is who we're called to be and are called to aspire to be like this. This isn't some dead artifact. This isn't a dead word. Like this is alive and active and God is still moving and is calling you and I, this community called First Methodist Mansfield, to be this kind of community as we see the gifts of, of the spirit poured out on the, on the church and the formation of the church and power. 
power and purity and unity. And that the church is, is formed and sent to the ends of the earth to always, to always learn, to always love, to always worship, to always evangelize in the name of Jesus. This is the community we're called to be. But man, do we do our darndest to complicate church. <laughs> man, we can do our best. And I know I'm guilty of complicating church <laughs> when, it's, when it's really simple. And when we complicate church, we confuse others. And when we confuse others, we create barriers. And when we create barriers, we keep people from fellowship with God. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Oh, that we would aspire to be awake and alive like the early church in Acts. <laughs> this is us. This is us. Will you please pray with me? Holy God, forgive us for getting in the way Forgive us for the ways in which we confuse each other. Forgive us for trying to control and measure the amount that we hear from you and experience of you. God, help us surrender and be open to everything you wanna teach us. As deep as you wanna lead us, God, help us be open to you, to your spirit, to grow as a community of faith that you have called us to be, God. And for those of us who are confused and uncertain, God, I pray that you take us back and help us remember a time in our life with you when loving was easy, when trusting was simple. Take us back, God. Remind us of when we first came to know you and love you and praise you. Lord, for us, give us the faith of a child. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen.